It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Our guest today is CEO Mark Jolay. Mark was appointed Chief Executive Officer in 2017 of Kodak Alaris, a global technology leader on a mission to unlock the power of images and information for businesses and consumers. Mark has previously held senior general management, product and marketing positions in some of the world's leading technology companies, including Apple, HP, Seagate, and Technicolor. Mark has French, US, and Canadian citizenship, enjoys travel, food and wine, mountain biking and running, and lives with his wife in New York City. Mark Gillet, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And as we do with most of our CEO interviews, when I want to start with the early years, you know, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, you know, what your family life was like. Absolutely. Um, I think the early years really defined uh, much of my um, both personal and professional uh, trek. And um, being born in Toronto, uh, a very uh, multicultural, multilingual city. Uh, my mother, uh, my mother was American from uh, Manhattan. Uh, interestingly enough, and my dad uh, is French. Uh, he's both from Paris and from the Jura region, which is between the French and Swiss border. And so I was brought up in a completely bilingual, bicultural home. Uh, went to a bilingual school in Toronto, and therefore juggled languages and culture um, with uh, a lot of ease. And didn't realize at the time um, how easy it was as a, as a child to, to absorb that as a, as a sponge. And we would fly back and forth to France to visit family in France and come back to Canada and to the U.S. to visit my mother's side of the family. So early years were very uh, multicultural, multilingual, and therefore opening me up to the diversity of the world in a very open-minded, tolerant city like Toronto, which has embraced its um, multicultural um, tradition. And um, I think that really formed me uh, in terms of just my, my open-mindedness and curiosity about the world. Absolutely. Tell me about your parents. It sounds like they were both expats in Toronto. What brought them there? Um, so interestingly, if they're both uh, professors of French, um, French language to foreign students. So that was their specialty. And they happened to meet at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. My mother was getting her PhD. Um, she got her undergrad from Middlebury in Vermont, um, very well known for its language classes. And uh, she was getting a PhD in comparative literature at the uh, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. My dad was teaching French at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. They met. My dad cooked for my mom. She fell madly in love with him. 
<laughs> they got married in Ann Arbor, and uh, unfortunately, my dad's visa, um, working visa, expired, so they had to leave the United States. Um, but they moved to Canada, and they actually moved to Toronto, where my dad taught at the University of Toronto. My mother taught at York University, and I was born a few short years later, and there, therefore grew up in Toronto. Had a paper route, played hockey like every good uh, Canadian <laughs> right? citizen should. Absolutely. Um, and my sister was also born in Toronto, so we uh, we lived in Toronto for my, the first ten years of my life. Just one sister. Yes, younger sister, seven years younger, and long, long blonde hair and blue eyes, which is exactly the opposite of me. <laughs> one after mom, one after dad, probably, exactly. right? Exactly, yes. So talk a little bit about your parents. You mentioned the influence, and obviously the globalization was an obvious one, the frequent trips back to the Jura, which I know, having lived in the Geneva area, beautiful part of France. Um, what other types of influences did they have on you in, the, in those early days? Well, both being professors uh, and language professors, um, the importance of academics, um, the importance of reading, the importance of uh, mastering languages, um, I think those were uh, certainly the, the values that they instilled both in me and my sister. My, I was far more of a math, physics, chemistry major and uh, an early computer geek in the, the mid-70s, late 70s when uh, App, Apple was founded. I fell in love with computers and was very curious about that. Uh, my parents were a little surprised because they were not at all technically savvy. My sister, on the other hand, was very much into languages. She, uh, she speaks English, French, German. Um, and then she studied Latin and Greek, um, so she took on even some dead languages. Um, so she was she was definitely much more of the uh, the literary side. Um, but I, I think it was just that attachment to academic um, uh, endeavor. And yeah, uh, I yeah. grew up, you know, surrounded by academics. We'd spend most of our summers actually in Vermont at Middlebury College, um, where my father taught and then directed the French language school during the summers. So I was constantly surrounded by professors and by teachers, and therefore the value of academia um, was uh, permeated the family. Um, and doing well in school was expected. There wasn't undue pressure, but it was uh, expected that you'd put in the hard work and, and get good grades and work on things that you weren't getting good, good enough grades on. Um, and that were, was, you, uh, were you a good student? I was pretty darn good, I think. Um, you know, I had my, the, you know, my, my subject matters that I preferred. Um, certainly math, physics, chemistry um, were kind of more my thing. Um, loved history, geography. Um, anything that was kind of a verbal, oral presentation, um, recitation, theater, et cetera, loved it. Um, sometimes writing a, a long paper on uh, literature, that took a little bit more effort. But uh, luckily, both, both my parents were very uh, talented in that area, so they could help me and coach me on, on how to get better at that. And your elementary, middle, and high school years, was that all in Toronto? No. Uh, so we left Toronto when I was 10. So this is around grade six and moved to the south of France um, in a lovely town called Aix-en-Provence, which is the right. former former capital of the Provence region. Um, no, absolutely wow. beautiful. beautiful. Uh, an old Roman town, um, which has inspired uh, many uh, painters. Of course, Cézanne being born there. Uh, and he painted the, the infamous um, Mont-Saint-Victoire mountain uh, countless times. And then everybody um, from Picasso to Renoir, to, I mean, they all came down there because that was the place to be if you were a painter and certainly an impressionist. And um, so I grew up in Aix, um, which is a lovely place to, uh, to move from after the, the harsh winters of Toronto to move to the, the, the Provence Mediterranean coast was rather nice. Um, and it's a lovely little town, 125, 130,000 uh, inhabitants, um, very kind of humane size, and went through uh, 
I guess, middle school all the way through the end of high school uh, in Exopolis. Oh, there. Right. Was it motivated by uh, one of your parents' professors' jobs? Is that what... Absolutely, uh, yes. My dad first came back to X to direct the University of Toronto um, junior year abroad program uh, that was based in Exopolis. And uh, quite a few programs are based there. Uh, Vanderbilt, Michigan, Wisconsin, Wellesley, Wesleyan, Smith... Um, and University of Toronto uh, all have their, their exchange programs based in X. And there's a, a very large university uh, between X and Marseille, and they have an institute for foreign students. Um, so my, both my parents were, were teaching actively in that foreign student community, teaching French, French language, French culture, uh, French literature. And uh, so we moved back for one year, uh, and then ultimately my dad um, and my mom decided we were going to move back to France permanently after, for them, it was about 17 years in North America um, together, and uh, we moved to, to X. So I spent the, from uh, the late 70s till the mid-80s um, in, uh, in X. You mentioned uh, hockey being one of your outside sports, uh, or rather one of the sports outside of class. Did you continue with hockey when you moved to France? Uh, Not quite pretty, a popular sport there. <laughs> pretty hard to find a, an ice rink. A rink, right. Yeah, no, right. no ice so rink. So how, how did that shift? What types of things did you get involved with? Well, interesting, if I was a, a goalie in hockey uh, in Canada, so I had all the gear, et cetera, and then I moved to France, and had I, given that I had been a goalie, they decided to put me in net in soccer, and um, apparently I was talented at uh, stopping a soccer ball just like a hockey puck so I became a little bit larger, <laughs> a little bit larger. but I, I basically became uh, became the appointed goalie for our our team um, so it was a lot of fun to to move to France and and deal with the the, the cultural adjustment um, on every front uh, you know culinary linguistic um, academic uh, sports um, but I loved it and uh, to this day still have many friends from those early years uh, back uh, back in France anything other than sports you know music theater any other pursuits as a kid um, computers. Honestly, it was the beginning of kind of the computer hobby era. Um, and I remember at age 10, um, my dad would drive me uh, on Monday nights from 8 till 10 p.m. to the local, um, I guess it was it was called the MJC, um, which is Maison de la Jeunesse et de la Culture, um, which basically is a, an event uh, location. And on Monday nights, they would have the computer hobbyist club and I was a 10-year-old kid, um, and everyone else were these uh, 40 to 50-year-old people that were discovering the early, early years of computers. This is 1978, so Apple had, Apple had just been founded, and we were into the TRS-80, the 10, I don't know if you remember that computer, but it had 16K of memory. Um, you would load programs with an audio cassette, 300 baud, it would take four or five minutes to load up 16K of memory, and um, you, you turn the computer on there, you, it didn't do anything. You had to program it. <laughs> so that literally was my hobby. With, from code from the very beginning. And yeah. that was that was what became my hobby. I was curious about computers and then would spend my time anytime I could get onto a big giant VAX system and got a terminal. I could log into it and figure out how to do stuff, play games at first, but then learn how to program things. Um, saved up enough money to buy my own TRS-80 computer, um, then saved up some more money, sold that one, bought an Apple II, um, and so on and so forth. And computers was... I guess my main passion outside of, I was very into model trains as well on the side. Uh, my dad and I, that was kind of a hobby that my dad and I shared, but the computers I decided at age 10 or 11 that I was going to work in the computer industry and that I was going to work for Apple. I knew I was going to work for Apple and that was my goal at age uh, 10 or 11. Apple was maybe a two year old company and I knew I was going to go work for them one day. Yeah. And that did happen down it the road. It did happen indeed. Tell us about some of the entrepreneurial things. I think you mentioned something about a paper route. I can imagine that was probably while you were still in Toronto. Correct. Uh, were there some entrepreneurial things that you got involved with? How did you, how did you save money for that computer investment? 
Um, well, certainly the paper route, which is a very classic North American, you know, kind of job for kids, and, and Toronto being an incredibly safe city, um, it was a good way to make decent money. And this is back in the mid '70s, and I would, you know, get up at some ungodly hour in the morning, and I, I would go off and, and find, you know, rain or snow, I would find my hundred and some odd newspapers, uh, dropped off in the corner, and put them in my little cart, drag them around, and put them behind, you know, in the milk box, put them behind the screen door, and made sure everybody had their newspaper and would insert the TV guide. We still had one of those at the time. And uh, and then every two weeks, I would go around and collect the money. I would offer to shovel the snow for an extra twenty bucks. Um, so that was the uh, the upsell. And um, and then once a month, the Toronto Globe and Mail gentleman would come by, pick up uh, the money that was owed to them, and everything left was mine. Was yours, yeah. And I was making, you know, at my age nine or ten, I was making a hundred Canadian dollars a month, which made me the richest, kid in the, yeah. the richest kid in the block. <laughs> and, uh, so I could save that. I could buy, finally buy presents for my parents, for other people. I could buy myself some stuff. Um, and, and I guess the whole summer job thing became part of what I liked to do. Um, eventually, you know, got some summer jobs at Middlebury College where I spent time when my parents were there. And it was, and worked with an ad agency uh, in Toronto uh, one summer. And it was just good to make, you know, here and there, a few hundred, few thousand dollars uh, over the course of a, of a summer, which which was nice, uh, nice pocket money, and it gave me that appreciation for work and the reward of work, um, which is not only pride and intellectual stimulation, but you know, you take you know, take home pay yeah, and a paycheck, important. which is nice. Yeah, probably not so much culturally um, acceptable to work while you were going to middle school or high school in France, though. Or, or, or were you? Were there things that you did in school there? Yeah, that is just not part of the culture. The the, the summer job, the part time job, working at um, you know whether it's you know McDonald's or the ice cream parlor, it just isn't done. That's right. Um, yeah, babysitting, yeah. babysitting at maybe. Um, but the, the culture just is not, um, around these small jobs where you can make some pocket money. And so I find it that pretty much, it was pretty much school and soccer. Pretty right? much. And any computer, obviously. And, and, and honestly, the, the school system in France is, um, far more intense in terms of school hours and homework. Um, starting in grade six, you go to school from eight to six every day and you go Saturday mornings, eight to 12. Um, so that's a, and you don't have, um, you know, extracurricular sports. You don't have afternoon with sports. You, you literally have classes. Um, and it's, so it's very intense and they do weed out and branch the kids off very that's early. Right, yeah. Vocational and, um, as well as, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. um, unless you're taking German as a first language, Latin as an option, that's basically the elite class. Um, then they know you're going to be, you know, a science major or a math major and they branch you down that, that route. Um, and you, you really have to hang on, um, and, and compete. It's a very, very competitive and very unforgiving system, but academically there's no question. It's, uh, I think, uh, you know, miles above most other um, middle school systems that I've uh, heard of or are encountered. It was probably assumed by your parents that you would go to college, and that was probably always something you planned on. How did you kind of pick the college and the major you decided to go into? So uh, here again, because of the French school system, you, you get branched off. I knew I was going to be math, physics, chemistry. Um, that was considered the uh, the elite track. Um, I had on top of that, had taken Latin, um, which was more for the intellectual challenge than for the uh, the aspiration to be you know pope or doctor or lawyer. Um, and I also took uh, what they called industrial technology, industrial light technology, which was. Um, now, this is still in high school. This is still in high school. Um, so this was everything from programming to industrial drawing um, with those black ink um, drawings of 3D renderings of architectural drawings, etc. Um, so I knew I was going to do something technical, um, something in, in, with, with high tech. 
and um, took the French baccalaureate exam, um, which is uh, split into two years. There's a, a French exam that you take in your second to last year of high school. And then in the last year of high school, you have the full baccalaureate, uh, which is a two-week, eight-hour-a-day uh, written exam uh, of every subject matter that you've taken, uh, including philosophy, history, geography, physics, chemistry, math, languages. Um, and then once you get through those two weeks of grueling written exams, you then have about a week of oral exams. Uh, and then you get a grade. And based on that, you can get into various schools and universities. And I chose to go down the business school route. Um, so in France, you either go... What, to what was what was kind of the... Uh you know, the, the event that led you down that route, given the fact that parents were, you know, language studies and, and you had kind of more of the math and science uh, affiliation. What, what made you decide business was right for you? I felt that was probably, um, it was more of a balance. It wasn't just pure science for the sake of science. It was um, technical and mathematical uh, and logical, but also had um, the social science, had the, the business aspect. And I, I felt I wanted to be a, um, somebody in marketing. Uh, I think that was uh, kind of my, my intuition was that marketing of products in the technology space would be uh, my my area. And in France, you can either go to what's called faculté, which is the university, and it's pretty much free free university for everybody in France. It's part of the national education system. Um, or you can go into what they call these prep schools, which prepare you for these exams to the elite schools called the Grandes Écoles, a system that Napoleon invented uh, about 200 years ago. And you go in uh, to probably the most intense academic environment I've ever known, and you study like crazy um, and take a contest that's no longer an exam. It's a contest. In other words, they take the top people and kick out the rest, and they're about 5,000 people that apply for each school, and they let the first 500 into the second round of contests for the oral exams, and then they take they basically admit the top 250. So it's a pretty wow. pretty tough system. Very intense. Um, yeah. But intellectually, probably the most stimulating um, uh, academic years of my life. And uh, took and it was that in Paris then? No, or I actually moved you? up to Versailles. So I went to Versailles. a Jesuit school um, called Saint-Geneviève, which is a, a very famous prep school in uh, so the outskirts of Paris, and uh, was in boarding school uh, in a Jesuit school. And they um, basically, you study nonstop seven days a week for an entire year, and then you take those contests and you try and get in to the top 250. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get in uh, after my first year and got into one of the three uh, Parisian business schools. There are three top business schools in Paris. Uh, and there's one that is actually in downtown Paris called ESCP, École Supérieure de Commerce de Paris, which happens to also be the oldest business school in the world. It was the first business school founded um, ever and uh, got into that school, which uh, then allowed me to move from Versailles to Paris. So uh, that was a two-year program then, a three-year program three. in Paris? So the three-year three -year business school program, uh, including internships um, between years one and two and years two and three. Um, and, and those two were interesting work, work internships work, then? Absolutely, right. yes. They had to be work internships. And two interesting things uh, pertaining to the business school. Uh, one was that when I entered, um, they asked me what languages I wanted to study. And I obviously English and French, I was fluent, so I didn't need either of those. Um, Spanish, I'd already studied for about eight years. German, for about eight years. Years. Um, so I figured I'd tackle a new language. And this is back in 1986. And I asked if they had Russian 
because this is the tail end of the Cold War. Right, the Berlin, right. the, the Berlin Wall, wall was yeah. uh, um, was about to come down. Teetering, and for me, right. <laughs> uh, Russian was an interesting language, and plus phonetically, I found it absolutely beautiful. Um, great literature. The uh, a very complicated language has even more um, declensions than Latin um, and German. So a very complicated language. But uh, and it was Cyrillic alphabet. So I thought it would, I thought it'd be interesting to to take Russian. And unfortunately, I was the only student asking for Russian. So they said, "Sorry, we're very sorry. We will not have a Russian section." Um, so you have to choose another language. So I looked at the list of languages and Japanese was the next one on the list. So I said, okay, let's take Japanese. And I studied Japanese for two years, full, full immersion during the class. It was uh, fascinating. Learned uh, you know, parts of the three alphabets. Certainly the first two I mastered. The last one is kanji. So they're about 3,000 characters. Takes a little while to, uh, to become proficient there. And the third year, the, the deal was you'd study Japanese for two years and then do an exchange program um, for the, the first semester uh, of your third year. And yeah. that was my first time in Asia. Bought myself a one of those um, low-cost, round-the-world uh, tickets, and uh, picked up, you know, backpack and a little suitcase, and flew off to Japan via Saudi Arabia, Thailand, Hong Kong, uh, Shanghai, Taipei, Tokyo. That was on the way there, and uh, stopped everywhere, and you know, kind of backpacked around in each one of those places, and then lived in Japan for about nine months, and then flew back the other way, so via Hawaii, LA, uh, New York, and then back to Paris, and uh, and absolutely loved the uh, the adventure in Japan. Fell in love with the country. Have been back many times on business, and um, actually going back this summer for the third time on vacation with my family. Um, we love it so much. It's, now, uh, it's a fascinating an in- country. Did you do an internship there as well, or was that part of no, the program? No, we did. Um, no, I did my internships uh, during business school. Those were um, actually both with Apple. Um, that's where I'd, um, and my, when I was there in Japan, we did spend some time with companies, Yamaha in particular, I remember both the piano factory and the motorcycle factory for Yamaha, which was interesting. Um, but they weren't full blown internships. Um, so they were just a few days, um, inside the company, but the, uh, during the business school summers, um, I did both of my internships with Apple computer France. Um, which was just outside of Paris. And that's what really some cemented my love of their products uh, and their brands. And um, lucky for me, the day after I graduated, they offered me a, a full-time job. So that was your first job. Yeah. That awesome. was my first official awesome. job at Apple. And did you have uh, leadership responsibilities fairly early on, or were you more of an individual contributor during those early years at Apple? Um, the first two years, uh, I was an individual contributor. I was a junior product manager working on uh, desktop Macs and then eventually on the, um, the PowerBooks, which were the first portable um, computers from, uh, from Apple. Um, I had to leave Apple for about nine months to go do um, my military, military service. Military service, yeah, right, of course. France yeah. still yeah. had a mandatory military service back then. And as a French citizen, um, I was required to go and serve. Um, so went to boot camp for a month and then was posted at the Ministry of Defense, uh, downtown Paris, literally 10 minutes away from my apartment. And this was right after the first Gulf War and the French, which were part of the coalition then, um, hated being dependent on uh, American military intelligence, particularly satellite imagery, uh, the French having very, a very independent-minded military, even though they're part of NATO, um, <laughs> they're part of the treaty, they're not part of the organization, which means they don't have a joint command. And so the French wanted to be independent when it came to military intelligence. And just like the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency in the U.S., the French wanted their own, and they founded the DRM, uh, Direction du Renseignement Militaire. And there was a three-star general who was a uh, Yugoslav Civil War veteran um, uh, from the United Nations uh, Blue Helmets. Um, there was a 
colonel from the Air Force, an admiral from the Navy, a lieutenant colonel from the Special Ops Forces, and me, second-class sailor, um, with my little <laughs> pom-pom hat. And I was in charge of um, their entire computer network and uh, all the multimedia experimentation. This is just when we started to have QuickTime and video on computers, um, and Photoshop had just started to come out. And eventually I became uh, responsible for the daily military um, update briefing um, for the Elysee Palace, which is the French White House. And um, I would produce all the map updates for all the hot spots where France had troops deployed. And that would go into the presidential briefing and it would be sealed and then brought over to the Elysee for François Mitterrand, who was president at the time. And so that was fun. I got to do that um, and uh, draw little maps with, you know, minefields and troops and all kinds of things and um, had my top secret clearance and it was uh, and did that on a Macintosh um, and at the time I had one of the first color laser printers uh, that was ever made available um, and was able to print out maps uh, much much faster than their I was going to say you must have been in technology haven't yeah well they, <laughs> you know what's interesting is they had uh, some, uh, like a 20 million francs size kind of sun supercomputer whatever system and they could not produce maps as quickly and as um, elegantly as I could on Photoshop with a Mac and uh <laughs> That's why the, basically my maps became the, the you standard. Your technology in. Oh, I which see. Was, Interesting. Uh, so it was good. It, it allowed me to stay in touch with Apple. And then the day I um, wrapped up my military service, I was hired again by Apple Europe, which was also in Paris. Um, so this was the European headquarters, and that's when I took on my first uh, leadership responsibilities because I ran PowerBooks for Apple Europe. Um, so I had a team of people around Europe that were the individual uh, individuals running PowerBooks in France or Denmark or, or the UK. Um, but I was there. European leader, uh, and then I interfaced directly with Cupertino, um, the the global headquarters. What, what are some of the earliest leadership lessons you received from some of your bosses and mentors there at Apple, or or maybe even in the military? Um, I think a few things. Um, the danger of uh, communication um, and being being sure to bite one's tongue. Um, before you speak, because well, certainly on email, once you've sent it, it it's hard to retract. Um, and I guess just dealing with human nature in an office environment where there are egos and personalities. Um, and I think that was one of the great lessons was, I guess, situational awareness and situational leadership um, and understanding, um, certainly across borders and cultures, um, running a, a European team. So I had you know, I, I, Italians and Danes and Swedes and um, Germans and French and mixing all that with dealing with Californians. Um, and I think it was that cross-cultural sensitivity on how to get stuff done without rubbing people the wrong way. And I think that that was one of the key early lessons um, and something that I, I think since then have perfected and, and really enjoyed is that these multicultural business environments where you do have to deal with cultural sensitivities and language barriers and personalities and styles. And, and I guess I've, I've concluded after a 30 years career that all the um, cultural stereotypes are absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they absolutely. Are absolutely true and confirmed almost every single day. <laughs> Were there any specific bosses or mentors that had a particular impact on you? And not so much important their names, but maybe the the lesson that was learned from one or more of them. I think the my first boss, uh, he was the head of product marketing for Apple France, um, and he really taught me what it was to have passion for a product. And I think you know, if I take away from my eight years at Apple, what it taught me was the love of the product. 
And it's certainly been one of the main criteria for any of my job assignments is I have to love the product. And the product can be hardware, software, service. It, it really doesn't matter. It can be a consumer product or B2B product. But I have to love the product and believe in the product. And a commodity is pretty hard to love, um, but something that's differentiated that you can, there's a value proposition around. And he really taught me that passion for the product. And a product manager is probably the best job I've ever had because you're a mini general manager of your product. You're launching the next generation Mac or whatever, and, and you have to touch all the different facets of the, everything from the naming to the pricing, to the positioning, competitive landscape, the channel programs, the reverse logistics, service and support, all the marketing material, the press conference. Um, and for me, that the four casting, all these things. And that, he taught me that. And uh, I'm still in touch with him. I see him uh, sometimes when I'm in France. I, I get to see him and I, I thank him every time because he changed my life yeah, um, by hiring fantastic. me straight out of business school. Is he still with Apple? Uh, no, he left Apple, I want to say in the late 90s, uh, probably shortly after I did. Tell us about the time you first started managing someone. Was that also at Apple or was that further on in your career? Um, the first people management um, I think with people hardline reporting to me would be at HP. Um, so I moved to HP after eight years at Apple. I, they moved me to Cupertino in, in 1993. So I um, was planning on staying there for just a few years, ended up spending 15 years in the Bay Area. So <laughs> a little bit longer than planned. Um, and my wife and I had just gotten married. So we moved out there and it was it was a lovely, lovely place to, to, to continue our uh, early uh, married years. And we had kids there, our first house. Um, and... After eight years at Apple, yes, I think it was after eight years, I left, went for HP, which was literally just down the road. And um, HP was hiring quite a few ex-Apple people on there. And in my case, they were beefing up their laptop team. And since I had done uh, PowerBooks at Apple, they figured they'd come and poach um, some, of the, some of the best, uh, the most successful uh, laptop folks. And I was put in, in charge of market development and product management uh, in HP's laptop division, which was called OmniBooks. And that was my first um, official team leadership role. Um, and it was a crackerjack team of maybe a dozen folks uh, to begin with. And then over time that grew. And, and I think the, the high watermark at HP after eight years there, I think the largest team I had was maybe two, 200 and some odd people. Um, but that was for me a great experience. I had some good mentors above me and some good uh, um, people management um, role models to, uh, to emulate. Um, and the, that taught me a lot uh, about how you run a team, how you deal with the personalities, how you deal with performance issues, how you deal with um, poor performance, um, how you deal with diversity, how you deal the the the, the crash course in <laughs> in people management was uh, was intense. HP, by the way, was very good at that. They they did an outstanding job at training um, people to be first time people managers, and that's probably one of the biggest gaps I see in many companies is pe people aspire to be a manager early on because it's the hierarchy, it's the title, it's the power, it's everything. But what they fail to um, re remember is you need to be taught how to people manage. It's not, it's usually not a, a God-given gift. It's usually something you have to learn. Um, and it's not an entitlement. It's certainly not something that uh, you should take lightly. It's, it's a very, it's an honor and a huge responsibility to lead a team. And um, uh, a manager, a poorly appointed manager or an incompetent manager can destroy a team um, very quickly. And um, that's something that I've observed and I've tried to avoid. Um, and it's something that I've, I've truly enjoyed over the course of my career is leading teams. And the size of the team is, for me, secondary. It's really, can I transform a team to be the best team they know how to be? And can I, can I hire the best people, smarter people than me? Um, and can they, can they collectively you know, really move the needle um, on a business issue? And uh, that's probably been the best part of that, that those early HP years was understanding how to people manage. 
Well, Mark, how has your leadership style evolved over time? Um, well, I think it changes when you when you have hands-on direct responsibility for you know half a dozen to a dozen people. Mm -hmm. um, it's very different than, for example, today where I have twenty three hundred people around the world, and therefore I'm managing presidents who run businesses, and they each have five hundred, seven hundred people each. You you can't know everybody. Um, so there's a distance that's created. Um, there's also just with, you know, the title, the CEO title, um, sometimes people are afraid to approach you and, and therefore things get filtered and you're a little bit further removed. So you have to force your way down into the bowels of the organization, um, to the, the foot soldier level to understand what's really going on and make yourself vulnerable and accessible and reachable and open to feedback and, and criticism. Um, and I think that's what I've learned, um, is to not lose sight of of that responsibility, that honor, um, that, you know, the title doesn't entitle me, as I like to say. <laughs> That's is, good. I like it's that. It's just, you know, the, the title is, I just happen to have a different job description. Um, but everyone else in their job hopefully does their job better than I ever could do. And, you know, they probably can't do my job. I probably can't do their job, but we can learn from each other. And for me, the, the CEO job is indeed a title and there's a responsibility. And if I make, if I make a mistake, it's probably a big mistake <laughs> uh, just by the nature of the decisions I'm asked to make. Um, but I'm also there to be their cheerleader. I'm there to be the, hopefully the uh, inspiration. I'm there to make the big strategic choices um, and, and some of the tough choices. Um, but I think it's, it's a, a level of humility and just realizing that CEO doesn't mean I'm smarter or better. It's off very often serendipity. It's I had good bosses. It was good timing. I was available. I was open to relocating. Um, but it doesn't make me a better person. Um, it just means that you know, okay, I, by circumstances of life and and rebounds and ricochets, you you know, you end up in certain positions. But I think it's always an appreciation for the foot soldier, the individual contributor, all the way through the ranks. Um, and you can learn from anybody and hopefully you can teach them a few things too with, uh, you know, the, the 30 years and of accumulated wisdom. How do you decide when it's time to micromanage and when it's time to stay out of the sandbox, particularly with your direct reports? I guess I, I boot up with uh, implicit trust. Um, but if the trust is betrayed either by incompetency or, um, or just, um, let's say uh, untrustworthy behavior, then I will, um, I will jump in. Um, but I, I guess I extend trust naturally, um, first of all, because I don't have the time to go micromanage everybody. I will spend the first few months usually um, absorbing like a sponge, and therefore I will ask a lot of probing questions, but not in the spirit of trying to tell them how to run their business or their function. I will do it to learn. And certain areas I'm, I'm far more comfortable with and I can ramp up quickly. Um, certain domain areas, I, obviously I need to, to, to kind of get in the, into the sandbox and, and understand how things work, uh, but then I'll back off. Uh, particularly I will back off if people um, deliver on their commitments, if they deliver on their numbers. That for me is job number one and, and credibility building right there and establishes a level of trust. If you say you're going to do something and you do it or exceed it, then I will back off. Um, if somebody says they're going to hit a number and they miss the number, that usually sends off alarm bells and I'm going to go um, in and micromanage. If I see poor behavior, so there's results and then there's behavior. If I don't see a leadership style that I can um, support, it doesn't have to be exactly the same as mine, but if it's a leadership style that um, I have issues with, then I will go in and micromanage on the, the behavioral side uh, as opposed to the operational side. Mark, you've worked for some great companies, but they have not been without their cultural shifts. Apple, of course, case in point, with Steve leaving and then coming back and the transformation that's happened since then. HP and, of course, the challenges they've had and the divestures and the investments they've made. And, of course, now with Kodak. 
right? And the, and the rebirth of that. Oh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on building a company culture and what that looks like for you. I think that is the most exciting and most difficult challenge. <laughs> um, and uh, almost uh, you think for a CEO or for anyone? For anyone, but for a CEO in particular. And I think somewhat masochistically, I tend to relish those cultural challenges <laughs> um, because usually they're associated with a business challenge, right? It's rare to have a broken culture and a successful business. Um, and it's, uh, and, and a great culture doesn't guarantee a good business, but it sure makes it a lot more pleasant to try and fix the, the outcome. And indeed, at Apple, I saw four CEOs. I saw Scully, Spindler, Emilio, Jobs. So that's quite a bit of cultural shift there. <laughs> at HP, I saw three CEOs. I saw Lou Platt, Carly Farina, Mark Hurd. Um, great culture at Seagate, uh, very intense, operational. Um, Bill Watkins was a, was a very, very charismatic CEO. Um, Bose, fascinating, uh, because Dr. Bose, the founder, was um, there for most of my years. Unfortunately, he passed away, but he really, the culture was him. Um, and I had a, that was probably my biggest cultural transformation um, assignment, was taking on Bose Europe, which had um, an incredible history, but also a very ingrained culture that needed some um, serious shaking up. And um, everything from local fiefdoms to a very dictatorial, abrasive leadership style to lack of diversity, whether it was age or gender um, or nationalities, um, and just a, a management style that was entrepreneurial, which worked great in the early years, but 30 years into it, 40 years into it, um, had broken um, because it, it couldn't scale. And so that was probably my biggest cultural challenge. And uh, in hindsight, I'd say probably the biggest cultural success. Um, and then since then, um, certainly uh, Kodak Alaris has an incredible legacy, 128, 129 years of, of Kodak heritage, which is both a great asset and a huge liability. <laughs> um, and the the trauma of a chapter 11 um, you know, bankruptcy a few years ago, and and trying to recover from that while you're standing up a new company with a unique ownership structure by a pension fund, and you have a mix of longtime Kodak um, experience, people that really have 30, 40 years of Kodak, and a lot of early career millennials that have been on board for a year or two, and how do you get the best out of those two populations um, with, a, with, a, with a population that's been scarred by a Chapter 11 that really came as a huge surprise um, for, the, for the, the Kodak uh, heritage folks. And how do you um, how do you change that to be a new company that is proud of its heritage, but operating at a different clock speed and with a different leadership style? And so I enjoy that. That for me is um, it's also mid to long term. It's not something you can fix overnight. It's something you invest in. You have to get some data, some quantifiable um, action plans to go and change the culture. And in some cases, you have to change. You know, uh, Jim Collins and Good to Great, probably one of the, the best yeah. business uh, business bibles out there. <laughs> right. you know, it's it's getting people on the bus deciding where you want them to sit on the bus and getting the wrong people off the bus. And I've used that analogy quite a bit. And it's our tagline, by the way. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I live by it. Yeah. I live by yeah. it. And you can assess pretty quickly, um, back to your earlier question of do you extend trust? Um, I can determine pretty quickly within three months whether somebody's going to be on the bus with me, if they're going to move up to the front seat next to me on the bus, or if they're going to need to be um, removed from the bus. Um, and that is, um, that's certainly how I like to build leadership teams is that, that, that bus analogy. Are these the right people? Um, not so much in functional operational expertise. I, I assume that's there. That's a given that those are table stakes, but are they the right leaders? And are they the people I want to go into battle 
with on this, you know, be on the same team and go and fix all these tough issues. Um, that I don't take easy assignments. <laughs> Unfortunately, I tend to take some tougher ones, and I, therefore I need some lieutenants that are really gonna we're gonna lock arms and we're gonna go fix stuff. And it's that that bus analogy is uh, is one that I really live by um, and and determine are they going to be on the bus with me or do I need them off the bus and uh, and I, I literally in some cases will use that imagery with people and say listen I'm not sure you're the, you know the right person to be on this bus <laughs> there's a lot of other buses out there and there's a stop exactly. coming up <laughs> exactly <laughs> Mark that's a good segue in our next question which is you know what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in I let other people in the interview process, I'm never alone in interviewing, I let other people in the interview process assess the functional expertise. Um, If I'm hiring an HR professional, a a CFO, a marketing professional, I have my ideas and I'll, I'll, I'll probe a little bit and I'll look at their resume, but I really look for chemistry. I look for, you know, well, am I going to enjoy working with this person? Are they going to make me better and smarter? And can I bring something to them? And am I going to enjoy being stuck on a plane or, you know, on some business trip? Um, am <laughs> I going to enjoy... desert island, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Am I going to enjoy having, you know, dinner with this person? Am I going to enjoy um, fixing business issues and having a, a healthy um, debate as opposed to just a, you know, friction-laden one? Um, so I look for chemistry. And if, uh, if I don't feel the chemistry, usually that's a, that's a telltale sign in my gut that I'm not going to be able to work with this person. Um, now, some people are very good at, um, you know, the facade and the giving, giving the right impression. Um, and I've been burned a few times um, when, you know, after the interview is like, hey, great chemistry. But then you realize oh, that was just a, that was just a, a game. Um, but for the most part, that's how I, uh, that's my last, I guess, criteria to push someone over the edge in terms of hiring them or, or deciding not to is, uh, and I'd say statistically it's, uh, it's paid dividends because uh, most of the people that I, I sense there's a good chemistry, um, it pans out that way and, uh, and leads to, you know, very long, um, working relationships and in some cases, long time friendships. It sounds like you, you know, as you said, you rely on others to assess the you know, functional capabilities and the qualifications, et cetera. But let's say if, uh, you know, it wasn't maybe your direct report, but maybe a level or two down and the person that uh, reported to you said, you know, I really want you to meet this person, but, you know, you tell them I've only got five minutes to do so. Well, what would you ask them in that five minutes to try to assess whether or not that person should join your culture and your team? Well, I do actually um, try and insert myself in key hires. So I don't just interview the, my direct reports. I interview anybody who is going to be in what I call my top 50. Um, and it just happens to be that number today at Kodak Alaris. So anybody who's not only in my direct reports, but in my direct reports, direct reports and, and key positions. So the, the, even that, the hierarchy is not necessarily the only criteria. If it's a key role that I want to personally be involved in, um, I want to be part of the interview. I want to either be the closing interview um, or the final decision maker um, or input on a, on a critical role. Um, and here again, it's not about micromanaging, but it's it's ensuring cultural fit. And for them also to realize that the CEO is accessible and the CEO is interested in this role and the CEO is, is vested in the successful hire for this role. And do you do uh, those interviews one-on-one? Is yes. that a panel environment? No, 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 no one-on-one. one-on-one. And, and so what do, you, what do you talk about? What are the types of questions that you ask that, uh, that report? You know, but the way I scan resumes, um, I look at the name of the companies, I look at the the, the education, and I look at the country. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. usually one of those three things sparks a conversation. Um, either it's a company I know, or a product or a brand that, that I know, um, either it's a university or college that I've heard of, mm-hmm. or it's a country that I'm, uh, I'm aware of, uh, and uh, hopefully have visited. 
and I start usually down that path. That's your bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and I don't worry about their their you know whatever marketing prowess or sales savviness or you know their operational expertise or their their finance acumen. That those are not the things that um, that I worry too much about because I, I trust that everybody who's yeah. interviewed them before <laughs> if me. they've gotten to you. That those have been vetted. Exactly. Right. right. Exactly. I assume they've been vetted. But I just I look for um, body language. How do they behave? Are they are they nervous in front of the CEO? Are they comfortable? Are they uh, ego driven and arrogant? Are they super nervous and can't put two words together. Um, so I, I, I look for, for that, the, the personality. And um, do I see them wanting to come and fix things? And why are they leaving their previous job? And what kind of manager are they? And what kind of managers they like to work for? So it kind of get, I tease that out throughout the conversation. Um, sometimes talking about maybe more personal things like hobbies or cooking or food or travel, um, just to, to get a sense for who the person is as opposed to what the resume says. Mark Chalet, you've been very, very generous with your time. We have one last question we like to ask all the CEOs. And, you know, it's kind of that career and life advice, you know, you'd give to someone. Maybe someone is a little earlier in their career, maybe 10, 15 years you're younger. Maybe it's got their eyes on the corner office. Maybe wants to be an entrepreneur someday. What would you What would you tell them? You know, what's important for them in their career when they're looking forward and maybe wanting to uh, hold that top slot at some point in time? I think the the first thing is networking. And not networking for the sake of you know, building, you know, I have the biggest LinkedIn network. It's networking because you can tap into that network and you can give back to it and they can, they can serve you. And it's everything from great bosses you've had to recruiters who call you to college buddies. And it's making sure <laughs> that you stay in touch with people and you follow them and they follow you and you ask them for advice. You ask them to be your mentors. They take you under their wing. And I'd say about half of my assignments have come through a previous boss that I've stayed in touch with who took me under his or her wing and pulled me over. And as they pull, as they go up, they pull me over and up with them. And that is probably the greatest career accelerator is to stay in touch with smart, successful people because they will hopefully remember you as a smart person and will want you to come and, and fight some business battle along their side. And, um, and I've been um, fortunate enough to be able to do that with people that I can reciprocate with is bring them along with me and pull them up with me. And so I think that networking is important. And um, I would suggest creating a database. I've done that for over 20 years now. I have a database that has virtually every person I've ever been in touch with. And I've followed their careers and I've followed recruiters and venture capitalists and private equity folks, just so that I know, you know, with all these people that I can reach out to, um, they reach out to me. Um, which is interesting now. They, they they call me and say, Mark, can you suggest this person or that person for this or that assignment? Um, so I, I for me, it's, it's both give and take in this network. And I can rely on many of them to be references for me. I can be references for them. Um, I can tap on their shoulder and say, hey, I'd like some career advice here. or I'd like some personal advice given this situation. Um, so I think that uh, that networking is something that you can start very easily and early on, and it just snowballs and compounds interest literally over the course of uh, the decades of one's career. So I think that's something to to not neglect and to start early on, um, because after 10 years, 20 years, you'd be amazed at how big of an active network you can have that um, is both something you can tap into, but also that can can, leverage your own uh, experience. Um, So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is to be, if possible, uh, open to opportunities. And what I mean by that is be open to changing, open to geographically relocating, um, open to 
I, I guess, you know, one of the values... You're willing to raise your hand, right? To raise your hand, exactly, and make it known that you're willing. And I think it's one of the key HP values that I remember very distinctly, and to this day, it's, it's really driven a lot of my career decisions, and I encourage others. It's called career self-reliance. The, com- the company is not there to manage your career. The company is there to potentially give you career opportunities, but their job, a company's job, is to deliver its numbers to its shareholders. And your career is a, uh, a means to get there, but that's not the responsibility. The responsibility for managing one's career is oneself. And therefore, career self-reliance means seize the opportunities, create the opportunities, position yourself to be considered. And you know, did I position myself to be hired by Apple? Yes, I got hired. And then I raised my hand and they said, we're going to send you to Cupertino. That changed my life completely. And, and then and I just think of, in hindsight, all the serendipity, all the luck, all the networking, all the good bosses, all the good timing, being at the right place at the right time, is that willingness to raise your hand and to volunteer and say, sure, I'll relocate. And this Kodak Alaris position is the same thing. We were very happy in Paris for the last 10 years. And the opportunity came came around and they said, would you relocate to the US? And I said, as long as I can you know, move my family to Manhattan, absolutely. <laughs> And, uh, and that's, you know, not many people, people maybe think of doing the expat thing and, um, but are they really available to do it? Yeah, and I think if right. you, if you're in a position to say yes, it opens up so many more doors to say yes to a new opportunity. It changes your life, changes your life trajectory, changes your personal life. And, uh, so those two things, I think networking and staying in touch with people and being open, um, and positioning yourself to seize, um, serendipity. Mark Jolet, once again, thank you so much for your time and sharing your journey into the corner office. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.